Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Across the country, universities, nursing homes, even entire cities are turning to an unlikely tool to monitor the spread of the coronavirus. Sewage water. Yeah, it turns out people who are infected with COVID-19 shed particles of the virus in their stool when they go to the bathroom. When they flush the toilet, those particles make their way through sewage pipes that are accessible via manholes or other openings. And from there, researchers can collect samples that may offer clues about how much virus is circulating in a community. It's fascinating research. So on today's episode, we decided to take a look at how this sort of testing has been playing out at a very specific location, the University of Virginia. What does it really take to get the testing up and running? How can it help researchers detect the virus early? And I guess most importantly, what does it mean for me and you? I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. So we fish down this, you know, long tube down to the wastewater, and then it sucks up 30 mils every 15 minutes. And then we get a a large composite of fluid, and then we process that composite sample and enrich for the RNA and then send it to the lab for detection. That's Dr. Amy Mathers. She's an infectious disease physician at UVA Health and also associate director of clinical microbiology for the University of Virginia's School of Medicine. Back in June, she and a colleague began testing sewage from the university's buildings for traces of the coronavirus. Back then, they were still trying to figure out the best way to even collect the samples. So we were doing buckets and you would all lower sorts a bucket things. into the into the manhole and <laughs> yes. it's, it's just as it's envisioned in your head. <laughs> it was on a rope, and then we lost a bucket, and then we were like, "Oh no!" So yeah. <laughs> To understand why Dr. Mathers thought to investigate sewage in the first place, you have to learn a little bit about the kind of research she does. Prior to the pandemic, I was trying to understand how drug-resistant pathogens were being transmitted in the hospital, and it brought us to the wastewater systems, the sinks and toilets, and how some drug-resistant bacteria can thrive there. We, we couldn't understand where they were coming from or how they were getting to patients because traditional, you know, patient-to-patient spread was not making sense. Mm. And so just through a lot of shoe leather epidemiology, we put together that the wastewater had to have been involved. And when we started looking, lo and behold, we found drug-resistant bacteria thriving in the wastewater in the hospital. We've put interventions in place in the hospital to stop that transmission, and we've almost eliminated that type of bacteria spread getting to our patients in the hospital through that work. That's so interesting. So at what point in this pandemic did you think, hey, we could also use this, this sort of sewage testing to search for traces of COVID? So um, early in the pandemic, there was a lot of 
discussion around using wastewater to do sort of population-based surveillance. And for me, just as a clinical microdirector and being asked to test so many humans for COVID at numbers that I would have never imagined we were running a test, you know, we had lab personnel that are just struggling to keep up with the demand for PCR testing. In addition to that, I had been involved in several nursing home outbreaks that are just devastating when you go in and you're testing. You know, it's just just, just devastating to see 80% positivity in a nursing home. And so because of that, I was thinking, well, since non-viable RNA is shed at a pretty high rate in the stool, even early in infection, often before symptoms, you know, maybe this could be an early warning system for detection in a way that you do pooled surveillance. We'll just do it on the back of the building and we can spare all the elderly people multiple tests per week and we can spare all my lab personnel (laughs) running individual tests. And so that if we detected it, then you could turn and pivot your resources to those buildings where you're seeing a positive signal rather than just blindly trying to test every building where there's people living together. When you were proposing this at UVA, at a university setting, what was the biggest challenge uh, of of just getting this sort of testing going? Yeah, so um, in the beginning, I talked a lot about how I work in premise plumbing. And, you know, I'm an, I'm an ID doc, right? So I don't, yeah, I've learned a lot about plumbing. Um, <laughs> so, you did not think your ID, your infectious I, disease training would make you such a plumbing correct. expert. So most of my focus and knowledge that I've learned about wastewater plumbing is within the building, but I had actually partnered with um, somebody in the School of Engineering, Lisa Closey-Peterson, and she, as an engineering expert, we kind of partnered together to get this going and off the ground. And so accessing, you know, where the outflow comes from a building. And so you have to find that sort of one pipe that comes out the bottom of the building. And that may be in a manhole cover that's in the middle of a street, or it may be within the building and you can, you can access it kind of right as it exits the building. And so getting all of that set up was a large challenge. You know, I mean, I remember when I first read about the the idea of, of, of sewage testing, it, it made sense to me, but I just wondered, there's, there's certain things that, you know, are just, I mean, they're gross. They're disgusting. Yes. And people don't like talking about it. How did, how did that conversation go with people? Um, I think that it is a little creepy that I'm monitoring people's stool, but we haven't had complaints. And a lot of people have really, you know, engaged and embraced the project and the idea and like, oh, this is cool that you can monitor that in a passive way and, and get ahead of, of spread. If if one of the samples then comes back positive, what what specific steps happen next? Yeah, so so we've been rolling this out at University of Virginia. We've been focusing on doing wastewater collection for dormitories, and we've selected the highest risk dorms where there's shared bathrooms, and we test the wastewater every day, and if we see a new spike in number of RNA particles that we're finding in that wastewater, we've gone in and tested all the occupants in that building. And we've found asymptomatic positives, and we've pulled them out and put them into isolation, and we haven't had any large dormitory outbreaks. 
That's really fascinating. If you come back and you, let's say you do sewage testing on a, on a dormitory of 100 people, let's say, and, and you don't find any traces of the coronavirus, of the genetic material for the coronavirus, what can you reliably say at that point? We're pretty confident that based on the way we validated our, our testing that we can find down to one in 100 positive cases. So in a building of 100 occupants, um, we can see the signal from a new infection uh, of one occupant. And so it's probably actually even more sensitive than that, um, but we haven't you know, tested it out further. One of the other problems, though, with this is the we want this method to work to find new contagious individuals in a building so that we can get ahead of transmission within that building. But we find that occupants that are after the contagious period are still shedding that RNA signature. And so they can give us a false positive. As we've really rolled this out in, within university dorms, we find that what we really are looking at is trends. And so if we see a building go from completely negative to weakly positive to strongly positive, we're concerned and we're going in and testing everybody in that building. But if we see these weakly positive for days on end, that might be old recovered shedding of RNA and not a new case. I mean, if we had testing for everybody every day, would that obviate the need for for what you're describing? It would. If we tested all the individuals every day, yes, it would obviate the, the need for wastewater surveillance. What I would counter, though, is we don't live in a world of infinite resources, and I don't know how many times you've been tested. You know, just processing that test, taking a specimen from a human, getting it properly labeled safely, getting it to a lab, getting it processed either as an antigen or a molecular, and then getting those results back to that human to, to, to action on, that is a lot of work. And so could this not be a way to passively monitor low-risk situations? And then if we see a signal, we get in there and we test everybody straight away and find those asymptomatics, find them early, and, and use this as an alternative to testing everybody every day. So I live in a, in a little neighborhood. I, you know, I'm guessing now the number of houses on our street, uh, maybe... Maybe there's a couple of hundred people who live in this area, you know. Are, are we tied together by our plumbing in ways that would make this potentially useful at a community level? That is often true, that a neighborhood will have a, a common um, outflow that could be used for this type of monitoring. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been hardest about the pandemic is our inability to reach vulnerable populations equally, and so could you use this to more proactively monitor neighborhoods where a lot of vulnerable folks might be living? It, it, also, it also seems like it, there, there, is a, there is an inclusion component to this as well because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, who they're not going to get to go to a hospital. They don't have insurance. They may be undocumented, but they do use the bathroom and they could contribute to, to data Right, that 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 could be used uh, to, for for larger populations. Yeah, you know, taking wastewater from a treatment plant, if you can get really good at quantitation, can you start to detect early surges within a population without the barriers, like you said, around access to testing? And so you can do calculations where you say, well, 
potentially this po- this community um, might be surging and and take public health actions. Maybe it's time to close schools. Maybe it's time to close restaurants. If we could start getting to policy matching with the rates in the community, here's what we should do when the numbers look this way. And here's kind of what we should do when the numbers look this way. Um, I think that would be helpful. As Dr. Mathers said, there are opportunities to hunt for the virus in sewage water on a larger scale. I'm talking beyond university dorms and nursing homes. In those situations, the findings from the sewage water could help identify emerging hotspots and help contain the spread. They can also supplement other sources of local data, like hospitalization rates and test positivity rates, to give us a fuller picture of the way the virus is moving through a community. The CDC has now even set up a website where it's encouraging state, local, and territorial health departments to submit wastewater testing data into a national database. Look, there's no question it is still early days for this new testing. We are all coming up with new things together. We are all learning together. But something like this offers some hope for better surveillance of the virus. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.